This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Tell Me This. I'm Brianne Roos here with Carrie Borkowski and a guest we're so excited to talk with, Dr. Heather Johannik. She's somebody we've been chatting with for years. I mean, Carrie longer than me, but every time I'm with Heather, I just love it because I learn so much and it's always a fun conversation. So I know that today will be no different. Let me give you her formal intro. Carrie's clapping. Yes. <laughs> So here's the bio. Dr. Heather Johannik is a coordinator of district-wide professional learning in Montgomery County, Maryland. She is a co-founder and coordinator of the Equity and Excellence in Education program at McDaniel College in Maryland, and the co-founder and principal of Equity Works LLC, a learning partner to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She teaches and advises students in the EDD program at Johns Hopkins University. Despite all of these roles and accomplishments, she still battles imposter syndrome. She is an anti-racist in progress who believes a key to collective liberation is the humility and vulnerability of white educators like herself. Find her on Twitter at Equity Warrior, a handle she aims to earn through actions, not just words. Mm. And I, it's so good. It's I mean, so, it's like a it's mic so drop good. at the bio, right? It's so good already in the I bio. Know. I was thinking that's like the best bio I've ever heard. I yeah. just love oh, that. Because oh, it has like the things and it has the feels. It's got all of it. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, I, I'm sure Brianne and Heather have faced this. Nothing, something our students never want to hear from us, but is true to the core is we all battle imposter syndrome. It doesn't oh matter gosh, how yes. many degrees you have, how many years of experience you have. Like, I don't know. Much. Sometimes I almost feel like that makes it worse because like, <laughs> there's an expectation that the bar is going to be raised when you have all these letters and stuff. I don't know. I, I mean, I've been wondering lately about, and I've not talked about it with them, whether men face imposter syndrome mm. as much as we do as women. Because I see it come out much more in the women that I work with. Yeah. I, so there was just a recent, I think it was recent um, Harvard Business Review article about white men and, and I'm probably going to get nasty emails from this, <laughs> but this was in a Harvard Business Review. So this is, these are not my words, although I do agree. Um, it talked about confidence versus competence. Mm, and so okay. often, um, and Heather, you can speak to this way more than I can, but the systems that are in place welcome and encourage and support and cultivate arguably the confidence of our white men, right? So that they're mm -hmm. able to, to rise to positions regardless of competence. So I, I do wonder too about sort of women and imposter syndrome. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, when I was 
finishing the EDD program that we all um, are alums of, I sought out the advice of a career coach because I was just like, what, you know, what am I going to do with mm -hmm. my life now? And I think a lot of us have that kind of moment. And she pointed me to a study about how, um, you know, women, when we look at job descriptions, you know, there'll be a laundry list of qualifications and we'll be missing like two and it'll stop us from applying, but men will only have to and apply. <laughs> and, you know, it's that, that confidence piece, not to say that they're not competent, but, you know, we struggle with that for some reason yeah. more than they do. Um, and last week, kind of random, I was facilitating a white affinity group with some leaders in um, my school district. And even though I was a facilitator, I had a white male colleague there with me who was way more experienced and skilled in that work than I am. And um, he was kind of texting me like, can you make sure you get everybody to speak? This person's not, you know, not trying to participate or whatever. And then finally, he just kind of asserted himself in the space. And I was actually happy about it. Just he has so much more knowledge and expertise, but we were debriefing it this morning. And I was like, I wonder if you felt more comfortable doing that because you're a white male in this space and you have some more positional power than I have. And, you know, we were, we were just kind of talking about that briefly, of course, because everything's always moving at a hundred miles an hour in a school district. But <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it was just interesting to think about that, like imposter syndrome and how it plays out in terms of gender. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I coach yeah. several um, emerging leaders and, and female leaders. And those are the questions that come up most often reframing, like looking at their CVs and reframing that like, look, you do have these experiences and sort of thinking about, you know, the self-promotion is really hard. So, um, and this is such a, you know, relevant topic as we sort of dive into the podcast and, and this, and this sort of conversation as, as most audience members know by now, this is all about belonging. We've explored belonging in gosh, now several different contexts, including the pandemic, the sort of height of the pandemic. We've talked to lots of leaders from higher ed, nonprofits, school districts about their sort of perception of belonging. And this year, Brianne and I really wanted to dig into relationships and sort of think about and and myriad types of relationships, right? Like your personal relationships, your neighbors, your kids, your students, your spouse, your friends, and sort of what does that look like, right? What when we how do we know it's belonging? How do we know when it's not belonging? And so um I'm just just like Brianne, Heather, I'm so excited to have you here because you really do bring um an important and different lens to this conversation and experiences that you've had. So so we always like to start off the podcast. We've done a little bit of this already, but we just like to check in and see, you know, how are you doing? How's your family? How's life? So yeah. So what's going on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a question I ask when I'm facilitating groups. Um, I don't even remember where I got it. I think on a podcast, I listen mm -hmm. to a lot of podcasts, um, you know, what's on your heart and mind? Mm -hmm. today. And that's, that's what that question feels like to me. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's funny, we were talking about <laughs> imposter syndrome, because I just started a new job. And, um, you know, probably TMI, but I also am a lifelong proponent of therapy, maybe not lifelong, like since I was 30. So a couple decade and a half now. <laughs> um, and it's this new job is kind of, 
creating this hustling for worth dynamic mm. um, in me. And so it, it's interesting, like the, the whole imposter syndrome thing. My, um, my therapist said to me, you know, you got the job, you're worthy, like you, are, you, you interviewed, you got this job, you don't need to be staying up late, making the perfect slides and creating the perfect agenda and mm. feeling like, you know, everybody walks away from your meeting, like, yes, that was so great. Um, but you know, I'm new to it and I do have the energy. And so unfortunately it kind of is affirming when people do stay after the meeting, like that was a great meeting. And it just is this like spiral of, you know, praise and um, reinforcement for something that I've been in therapy to try not to do. So, <laughs> but it feels so good, right? <laughs> it feels so good. That little like pat on the back, like, yeah, yeah. you're making a difference. It's, but it's like the opposite of internal validation, like seeking that external validation. Um, and I'm sure she'll come up more later, but you know, I have a 15 year old daughter and she's, you know, teenage times are not easy for anybody. Um, I think they're really hard when you're, especially, I think she'd, she'd be okay with me saying this when you're like, recently diagnosed with autism, um, mm-hmm. you know, and coming out. And so just, you know, trying to make space for her to be her authentic self. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she, she's like me, we have white middle-class monolingual women. Um, so we do have a fair amount of privilege in the community that I live in, which is one of the di- <laughs> most diverse in the nation. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that there's not still pressure to fit in and belong. So. Yeah. Mm. You have a lot on you these days. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah. think Brianne and I also love that introductory question. Um, part of it for me is sort of just acknowledging that you always bring something into the spaces you find yourself, right? Everybody does, whether you disclose or not, emotions show up, experiences show up. And so I think Brianne and I have learned through our experiences and also our research that you might as well just like hold hold space for that and, you know, have people share or invite people to share is really what ends up happening. So, um, so you've talked a little bit already, which is great about some of your experiences, life and professional. And so we're really curious to understand Heather, like how do those experiences contribute to shape your understanding of belonging? Um, well, I should disclose that I'm a recovering Catholic. Um, and so (laughs) sorry for any of the believers out there. You know, I, I went, I went to Catholic school K2, um, through college because I attended Loyola college, which Mm -hmm. you both work at. Um, Mm -hmm. so Catholic the whole way through. And so, um, I think that upbringing really raised me to believe in the basic goodness of people and mm-hmm. humanity. Um, even when it bites me in the butt, uh, I, I'm one of those um, statistical COVID divorces, right? So I'm recently back out on the dating scene and I haven't been, you know, right? Where is this conversation going? Um, so I, uh, I haven't, I wasn't, I didn't date, you know, I was with my partner since my ex-husband since I was 19. And so being in the dating world is really a challenge for authenticity and mm. believing in the goodness of people. And there's all these societal message. Oh, you know, they're lying to you. They're catfishing you. They're doing all this. 
Um, you know, and I know that my female friends are trying to protect me when they give me advice, but it just comes down to the fact I believe humans are basically good. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's okay if I get taken advantage of, or I'm, you know, I miss a cue or something and I can't change that about myself. I do think we can all learn and grow into the best versions of ourselves if we have the right conditions. Mm -hmm. And I think love and belonging are two of those conditions, um, I really am inspired by the work of Brene Brown. Uh, and she talks a lot about love and belonging and how there are these basic needs. You know, she cites Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but I have to say, you know, Maslow was borrowing from the Blackfoot tribe, he, whom he studied with, and that's not always acknowledged. Um, but I really like what she says about belonging. True belonging is the spiritual practice of believing and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world and the sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. True belonging doesn't require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I've been reflecting a lot, you know, as like a 44-year-old woman with two kids who's recently divorced, coming out of a pandemic, like, who am I? And how can I show up as myself? And how can that hopefully inspire other people, my 15-year-old daughter included, um, to show up as herself. But, you know, even though we're wired as humans to connect and seek belonging, I don't think society sets us up well to do yeah. that. Um, and Dr. Brown talks about, you know, when you, she, she wrote Atlas of the Heart recently, <clears throat> and um, she was talking about how sometimes there's a, a far enemy of a concept and a near enemy. And um, so when I think about belonging, like the far enemy would be exclusion, right? Something like that. But the near enemy, I actually think is more dangerous. And it, she, she talks about it as fitting in, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, and so, you know, definitely as a woman in this society, I feel like you, you're kind of brought up to seek external validation. You're hustling for approval and acceptance. Um, and that's super dangerous, right? Especially if like me, you want to be an anti-racist, you have to be against the systems that make us feel like we have to hustle and fit in, um, you know, the, the, white white supremacy, capitalism, the patriarchy, all the things that cause inequities and racism. And so trying to fit in is really dangerous, actually. Mm -hmm. It's it's not that close to belonging. It's 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 more dangerous to me um, than the opposite. And I think a lot about, you know, I, I do this work in the equity and excellence in ed program. And my Latina and Asian female students really struggle with imposter syndrome the most. Mm. Like, you know, I, I, as you said in my bio, I do as well. Um, but it's, it's much harder for them um, because they are afraid to take up space in my classroom when they get to me. Um, they worry, especially their writing is not up to snuff. Uh, and I remember having this conversation with one of my classes and one of the white male students said, yeah, APA, that's the language of the oppressor, the tool of the oppressor. Um, and it just really stuck with me. Like I put that in my syllabus now because um, I'm just thinking if he comes from such a privileged, privileged identities, I can only imagine how my students of color feel. Um, and I do think there's value in kind of teaching the tools of the oppressor sometimes, because you, maybe you can use them to tear down the system. But I just really dream of a place where we spend more time challenging those systems than helping 
our oppressed students fit in. Yeah. Um, because that seems like that's the opposite of belonging. Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh, there's like so much oh in my this. Gosh. So many trails made, we could follow. I mean, I'm like, which which breadcrumb do I follow from this amazing? I mean, you you yeah, the being versus doing, belonging to yourself. And I know you quoted Brene Brown. I would just because it's near and dear to my heart. I would just give um, credit also to Maya Angelou because that really mm-hmm. I think. Brene Brown and she acknowledges was inspired by belonging everywhere and nowhere, right. Belonging to Mm -hmm. yourself. Um, and I love, it's so interesting because you shared before we started recording, you shared very honestly and vulnerably the imposter syndrome. And it's interesting that the world has placed you in a role that forces you to fight every day. (laughs) against the external, right? Which is sort of the irony of that is not lost. Um, And yeah, I just love the far enemy of exclusion and the near enemy is fitting in. I have to agree with you. I feel like that assimilation, assimilation and fitting in is sort of feels more dangerous in a lot of ways as a member of a school committee in a small town. It's a, it's a hard road um, to articulate that piece um, and really, you know, you mentioned anti-racism and, you know, Dr. Kendi's discussion of you're either, you're either, you know, pushing the system forward or you're fighting against it. That's really his stance on anti-racism. And it's very hard for some individuals to see, to see that if you're not doing the work, you're just, you know, letting the system of oppression continue. So I, I was, so happy to hear you bring that up, Heather, and so beautifully articulated, way better than I could. So did you want to add something, Brianne, before? Yeah, I, I just, well, I, I mean, I think that was one of the biggest learnings for me in 2020 and beyond of just the Kendi's work, just this, it's, it's one or the other, um, and that we can move across and in between those things. But um, I was so struck by the language that you chose. And you said it in the beginning, you said hustling for worth. And I wrote it down because that phrase just like stuck and you've said hustle now several times since then and that contrasted with what you said as like the basic goodness of people and humanity because that phrase to me feels so settling and like so permanent like people are are good fundamentally compared to this like frantic image of somebody hustling because the hustle it's i just almost envision somebody like treading water you know, mm-hmm. it's so hard and you're just trying to keep your head up. And so the balance of those two things, I think you articulated it so nicely. And I was just like flooded with images of what it is to be a believer that people are good and in this goodness of humanity with the very real hustle of working for anti-racism and your own imposter syndrome, and then comparing your imposter syndrome to those of the people you're working with, like your Latina students. I mean, you just did a beautiful job. I think explaining that with words and also images. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, I when I think about hustling versus belonging, um, you know, again, very influenced by therapy. I give all the credit in the world to my my therapist. You know, internal family systems work, Dick Swartz's mm-hmm. work, um, and I've just recently been doing more of that on my own. And um, he really talks about the idea of the self. Um, and I feel like being in tune with myself is when I don't hustle, you know? So he, he said, he says that like your true self is like a CEO at the head of a board table or like an orchestra conductor. 
And when that person is in charge of the meeting or in charge of the orchestra, that they're like really leaning into these eight C's, right? Confidence, calmness, creativity, clarity, curiosity, courage, compassion, and connectedness. And I think that's what your work is getting after, right? That that belonging part. Um, but one of my other like younger selves, child selves that's in there with, with the CEO that has a seat at the table is the hustler. And the hustler is very present for me right now in, in my new role, let's say, you know, mm -hmm. out there trying to prove I belong here, I'm going to make a difference, you know, I can support other people to be white anti-racist. And so it's like a constant battle. And I think everybody has those battles in themselves, the different parts of themselves um, to lean into that true authentic self that knows, you know, I am enough. Yeah. And I don't need to hustle. Um, I just need to lean into what I believe, which for me is is I'm good and other people are good. And I just have to figure out how to tap into that. And in my case, use it for anti-racism. Yeah. Who was the, when you said family systems theory, who was the author you cited? Dick Schwartz. Schwartz. Yeah, Dick Schwartz. Not an we expert. We knew you'd have citations in there. <laughs> we, knew you, we knew you'd have them for sure. Well, it's interesting because I just had this wonderful conversation last week with a, a student um, actually from Hopkins and he and I have just stayed in touch and he, we were talking about critical self-reflection and just the importance of self. And, and that's what brought it up for me, Heather. And he really subscribes to um, combination of sources, but um, Buddhism, he mm, practiced okay. meditation and Buddhist practices. And he said, which I loved, um, similar to what you're talking about, he said that what Buddhists really talk about is process and the conditions that are required to just be right. So it's so it's yeah. not. So what he was saying is that rather than and, and imagine applying this, for example, to professional learning. So the mm -hmm. focus is no longer on an outcome, learning a strategy, learning an intervention, doing this thing, building efficacy, whatever. It's around what are the conditions necessary to create a space for people to, you know, flourish, right? Because the other thing that Buddhists believe, or one of the other things that Buddhists believe is that, and I'm totally paraphrasing because I am completely not an expert, is that we all have the seeds inside of us that we need. And it's a matter of what are the conditions that you bring to bear in that space to help those seeds grow, right? So that's all about mm -hmm. context. Um, so anyway, I just think it's really, it's interesting, like the the more you talk to different people and their perspectives, the more you recognize that we're all talking about similar things, but using different language. And mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. I just love that. And um, you've touched on it and I have a, I have a sort of a sense, Heather, but just to really be intentional, you used um, a quote from Brene Brown, which was really perfect for the, the question. I'm wondering when you talk about belonging, when Heather Uhanek talks about belonging, like, how do you, like, what are the words you use to define that, that, that concept? Mm -hmm. Authenticity. Okay. Vulnerability, um, which, you know, not shocking that I like that given Brene Brown, all yeah. the, all, how deep I am into her work, um, <laughs> which I feel like for me and, and, you know, maybe for others, vulnerability is kind of like both the superpower and the kryptonite. Mm. right like it it's what allows you to connect with with other human beings on a really deep level 
And if you can set the conditions, like you were saying, Carrie, um, then people do feel like they can be their authentic selves and be vulnerable. Um, I was, I was facilitating a, a meeting on Saturday and one of the participants said, you know, I, I'm, I'm coming from a place of vulnerability and then asked a question. And I was like, okay, we, we set the conditions. If somebody can say that, um, then, you know, they feel comfortable enough to ask something bravely and not worry about what other people are going to think, you know, he's being his true authentic mm -hmm. self. Mm -hmm. um, so I think for me, it's, it's really those two, the authenticity and the vulnerability. Um, but yeah, vulnerability can also be difficult for the self, I think, because if it's too, if you're too open, you know, there, there can be consequences to that. So it's like the right balance of, of vulnerability in this work, especially in anti-racism work, I feel like, yeah. um, you know, cause it looks different for white folks than for folks of color. And sometimes, you know, that's why I think like white affinity spaces are so important, racial affinity spaces, because sometimes when white people are really open, vulnerable with their questions and their thoughts and, and they're true and authentic to them, they can cause harm for people of color in the conversation. So I think it's really important that we have spaces for white folks where they can bring that true authentic self and those questions, but without risking damage and further oppression and trauma to our colleagues of color. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I, I, you're right about this idea of vulnerability. And I think for me, the, the setting conditions, and I think Brian, you and I have talked about this in our research. The thing about setting the conditions that resonates with me, if I'm being vulnerable is I think back to when I started this work as a, a, a less experienced educator and the sort of privilege and arrogance that I had thinking that I could really cultivate belonging in someone. Like mm -hmm. I think back to my language and I'm like, ah, that's not <laughs> like, first of all, I shouldn't take that on. Right. Like I, I can't, mm -hmm. I, my role as a educator, a parent, uh, what a facilitator is not to impose belonging on someone or any outcome on anyone. My responsibility as a facilitator in my humble opinion now is to figure out what conditions, right? Like how do I hold space? For people yeah. to explore this and authentic. So it's interesting how I've seen myself, I'm still a work in progress, trying to evolve away from strategies to holding space and listening and pr protecting when I need to protect and calling out when I need to hold people accountable, you know? So well, it's it's interesting you bring that up because I was thinking of a space that the three of us were in that reminds me of this. And it also reminds me, you know, you said about imposing belonging on people. You know, I it, in my work, I also um, lean heavily into Lena Aguilar's work. Um, she does coaching for equity, art of coaching, you know, educational coaching. And one of the lessons I had learned from her is especially as a coach and a facilitator, you know, hold lightly to your outcome. When you're coaching somebody, they need to be driving the conversation and you're making space for their emotions and they're, you know, you're trying to set the conditions for them to be able to be vulnerable and get what they want out of the experience. Um, and so I was thinking of us, you know, right after George Floyd's murder, um, I had been talking to a black female colleague in the system and we were just kind of outraged because our system had not put out a statement. Our district had not put out a statement and we were like, what are we going to do? And um, I started a group, a dismantling white supremacy culture group, which you two mm -hmm. participated in. Um, and she started um, 
an effort called the Community of Colleagues. And uh, her, our group, you know, lasted over the summer, we got together, we studied the characteristics, you know, perfectionism, right to comfort, fear of open conflict, all those aspects of white supremacy culture. Um, and her group is still going now. And so I always think about it. And it's, it's like what you said, Carrie, like, I think back, like, I was so arrogant in that work that, you know, I was trying to have it be a certain way, right? Like, I was always facilitating the sessions, I was bringing the work. And with her, um, Porsche is her name, Porsche Vanderhorst. Um, she tried to build a community, like she got it kicked off, but then she had other people say, what do you wanna talk about? What do you wanna facilitate? Should we do pop-up events? We have a app now where we connect. And I just was reflecting on how, you know, my individualism and my perfectionism and my wanting to do it one right way, my way um, is probably what led that our group to fizzle out. Whereas Porsche, you know, her collectivism and, you know, just trying to build a true community, but allowing the community to build itself and not force it a certain way, to me is why it still exists this day. Mm -hmm. um, because people feel like they belong in the community, you know, like people can go on our app and put rants about things. Um, and that's okay. You can be vulnerable. You can be authentic in that community. So I, I think that's why that that still exists and why our other group doesn't. What an awesome example of critical reflection though, right? I mean, Carrie, <laughs> you said, well, I mean, I just feel like I hear you being a little hard on yourself and I understand and I see the difference in the groups and one lasted and one didn't. So that's, I get that. Mm -hmm. I also see that, you know, you're doing good work. You're trying to do good work. You learn from what was done differently. And if you were to do that work again, you would structure your workshop maybe more similarly to, to hers, yeah. right? So there's learning Absolutely. in this. And I mean, mm -hmm. I remember Carrie, the moment that we had that breakthrough about belonging, we were on Zoom and we were like, hold on, wait a minute. I mean, we had all these podcast data mm -hmm. and we were kind of deep into conversation and it was like a light bulb. And that just means that we're learners always, right? Which that mm -hmm. kind of feels good, I think, because we talk, we talk about that. We talk about wanting to be learners. And I feel like this conversation is just demonstrating that as well. I mean, um, and I think we have a powerful role in that as white women, white women educators. Um, I, I really believe that I can help set the conditions for other white educators to find a space in anti-racism work by showing up authentically, by being vulnerable, by reflecting on my mistakes. Um, and I wish more of us were able to do that. But I mean, like you were saying, Brian, it, the the prerequisite is that critical self-reflection. And that's a very hard um, concept to teach or to foster. Like we're in, in my district, we're in the middle of responding to an anti-racism audit, which confirmed what people have known for a long time, people that have been paying attention. You know, we have long standing inequities in, in our district and they're racialized. And so we've been doing work with leaders and it's that critical self-reflection that separates, you know, how deep they are into the work, how willing they are to engage in it, how fast we can move. Um, and so trying to set up the structures and the conditions to foster that, um, but then not pacing for privilege, not going at the pace that's comfortable for white folks because, you know, we can't afford, you, third graders only get one year of third grade. Like we have to, we have to be able to push at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I've been working. So I'm working with a, a doc student on a work. We're trying to build a mini curriculum around how do you teach critical self-reflection? 
Mm. And it's, it's really finding a balance between participants come and they want outcomes. They want tips. They want practical, right? It's like you're in the system working against the system in a non-traditional way. And so, cause a lot of the workshops are, are really getting people to hold space to, to mm-hmm. notice. I mean, it's a lot of it is focusing on noticing, like what's coming up for you. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? How are you behaving? Why are you reacting? Why are you so attached to this thing? Right. Um, mm-hmm. but it's a, I have to tell you, it's like such a challenge in the system that we have for professional learning to develop something that I don't know, that feels resonant for critical self-reflective practice. So um, maybe offline, Heather, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit about what you're learning and noticing because it's it's not easy work to do. <laughs> well, no. And I mean, as a, you know, I, I just took this role as a coordinator for district-wide professional learning. I wouldn't have taken it um, if I hadn't had a partner. I have a Black female partner. We're, we're co-coordinators. And I think that's really important, especially when you're doing professional learning around race. um, and racism. And we were talking last week about how in trying to provide this learning for our district, um, we're trying to get to a place where anti-racism is who we are, not a checklist of what we do. Mm. That that's what she said. And that was so powerful, um, to me because, you know, people's time is limited and when it is limited, they do want a shortcut around the hard work. And I think it's easy to say it's about time. It's time. I don't have time. I don't have time, but it's also discomfort, right? Like that's a, that's a barrier. You do have Mm -hmm. time if you make the time, right? Uh, Kanita Williams was on the podcast. um, Dr. Kanita Williams was on the Mm -hmm. podcast last fall and she had a very similar sentiment, which was around being and not just doing right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think speaks to what you were saying, for sure. So Heather, we've talked about so many relationships, right? With students, Mm -hmm. with colleagues of color, with family, kind of circling back to our core of conversation around belonging. How critical do you think belonging is to relationships? Mm. Well, I mean, it's interesting because one of the characteristics of white supremacy culture is either or thinking and like the good, bad binary. And so I'm trying to avoid that. Um, (laughs) But it's almost like it, to me, it is kind of a binary, like in your relationship, you're either belonging or you're fitting in. Um, And that's easiest to think about through, you know, I always taught middle school. um, And like I said, I have teenage, a teenager, um, and we talk a lot about relate social relationships with peers, especially in in middle school and teenager um, time. And that to me is like I try to talk to her about the relationships where she feels authentically her, and that's where she belongs. You know, she she only has one good friend, and I think there's a piece of her that wishes it was more. And I'm always trying to tell her like, that's okay. If you have one good, true, authentic person that you can be vulnerable with and you feel like you belong in the space with them and you can bring the ugly, messy parts of yourself, um, then that's all you need. You know, you need people like that in your life. You don't need a ton of friends where you're just fitting into their world to feel worth and value. You need people where you can really be yourself and they're not going to flinch. Um, 
and I've been we've been doing a lot of work um, in our district too with Alex Bennett's work, Equity Center Trauma Informed mm -hmm. Education. And I know this is not her concept. Um, I can't remember whose it is, but unconditional positive regard. Um, and I have it on my bulletin board in front of me. I have a um, index card with it, and I keep it on my phone. And she says the 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 four kind of key messages about the unconditional positive regard: I care about you, you have value, you don't have to do anything to prove it, and nothing is going to change my mind. Mm. Um, and so I think that those are the kind of messages that we have to give each other in relationships so that people do feel like they belong to each other um, and they can be themselves and they don't have to hustle for worth or value because having value, being valuable or seen as valued is not the same as having value. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, that's the kind of relationships I want for her. Um, and I, and you know, how old I am, those are the kind of relationships I have with my friends. Like I have a lot fewer friends than I had when I was younger, but the, the quality of the relationships, um, I really feel like we belong to each other and we don't stop each other from belonging to ourselves first. Mm. You know, I can ignore a text. Mm. I can write back days later and it's still going to be okay. It's, you know, people trust that I'm doing what I need to do to be okay with myself first. Mm. So I think it's like that tricky balance between self and others when you're yeah. thinking of belonging. Mm -hmm. I mean, What's I feel I wonder if we're thinking the same thing. I'm just thinking about marble jar friends um, to, to circle back to Brene Brown's language, right? Like, having oh, that, yeah. Yeah. I just mm -hmm. love that. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I think you're answering this. You're answering this in, in the conversation. But will you just talk a little more explicitly about the role, the relationship between belonging and that cultivating of connection? So I'm hearing the authenticity, the vulnerability. I mean, you just gave us those four beautiful points. What do you think? Anything else to add to that? Um, I love those four points, by the way. I just wrote them I know, down. I just wrote them down too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have my little card. And then sometimes when I feel like somebody needs it, um, I have it in my notes section of my phone and I'll text it to them. Uh -huh. Like, you don't, you don't need to reply to this, but I just want to remind you, you know, yeah, we're in a tough cool. meeting or whatever. I care about you. You have value. Um, yeah. What a nice, yeah. that's a nice practice. Yeah. So I, I, I heard the struggle with the binary, not the binary, right? So mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you something that hopefully will move us away from the binary, which is when you think about belonging in your relationships, I think one thing that Brian and I have noticed and learned from different guests is, and we've talked about this, right? We're a work in progress. Well, belonging is different at different times in our lives at different mm -hmm. contexts, in different stages of a relationship, the new, you know, you're back on the mm -hmm. dating scene. So like mm -hmm. belonging might show up in different ways in that relationship versus a, a lifelong friend. And mm -hmm. so I'm wondering, are you noticing like, so think of like a newer relationship and an established relationship, like, are there different markers of belonging for you in those friendships or relationships that like maybe you see glimpses early on and they're deeper later. I don't know. I'm just making it up, but I'm just mm -hmm. curious, like what, can you just paint us a picture a little bit maybe? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll go dating on this one. Cause it's, it's easiest to see it. I think for me, 
um, you know, so I've, I've done the apps and, and all that kind of stuff and read about people out in the dating world. And one of the things that women want a lot is um, kind of that emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. that emotional vulnerability. Um, and I feel bad for men because I think in, in our culture, they're not socialized to do that. It's, you know, you want to be strong and a provider. And so the skills of talking about emotions and thinking about emotions are not really kind of taught to them explicitly. And I don't think they necessarily are for females either. It's just the way we're socialized that it's okay. Um, and so a marker for me of kind of like, oh, I want to be in relationship with this person. I want to belong here is that kind of emotional vulnerability. Uh, and I do watch for markers of it early on, at least in a dating or like a potentially intimate relationship, because I have to know that we're going to be able to go deep and like, mm -hmm. you're going to be able to hold space for, for me and all the things that, that come with me. And, you know, I, it, that's not always present in those interactions. And so it's trying to like tease out, is it, is it going to be, it's, it's asking the right questions too. Like um, one of the ones I really like to ask is, um, and it, you know, it requires to be a little bit into the relationship. You can't ask this on the first date um, is like uh, about, is there something about your body that you're worried I won't like, mm. which is, you know, a pretty deep, pretty deep question. Cause I have to be willing to answer in kind, you know, yeah. and, and, and mine are about having mom bod, you know, like I have two kids. I don't have a ton of time to be out working on myself physically. I, I mean, I do, but you know, not enough to meet the beauty standards of today. Um, and so I want to see if they can be vulnerable about that too. And selfishly it, you know, it affirms that it's okay to feel, you know, body, image issues or that kind of piece, like men have them too, but it also is a marker for me of like, are they willing to open up and share a part of themselves that mm -hmm. is difficult to share? Uh, and so I think that it, it, again, it just keeps going back to that authenticity and vulnerability for me. And it, it takes time to develop that in relationships. But I also think you can be, I mean, my past is evidence of this. You can be in a relationship for a very long time and that can be absent. So it, it, you know, it takes both people being willing to like put themselves out there and take the risk and um, share those like messy parts of themselves yeah. to, to get to that place. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I love the way you, you are just articulated that. Cause it made me think Heather that yes, belonging absolutely takes time, right? Cause we just got mm -hmm. finished saying it's a process. We can only set the conditions we can impose belonging. Yeah. And to me, it's a yes. And yes, belonging takes time and you can very quickly message to somebody that you're willing to hold space. Right. So like mm -hmm. setting the condition of belonging can happen immediately. If you are intentional about your practice and engagement with others, it doesn't mean they'll feel it immediately, but it's just interesting. I hadn't, I, th I wanted to thank you for that. Cause I hadn't in my brain thought of it that way, like the speed of it. Like it does take long. Like I've always thought, yes, belonging, of course it takes long to build all those things, but it doesn't mean you can't start immediately by messaging to somebody I'm a, you know, I could be a potential place to hold space, right. To go deeply if we want, if the, if that's something they choose to engage in. So thanks for 
that little nugget. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you can message authenticity very, very clearly and very quickly. I mean, vulnerability, probably a little bit different um, in terms of the degree of vulnerability, but Mm. I think people have a meter for authenticity and sincerity and you just know it. And I used to have students because I used to work in the trauma center. So I used to have students who said, um, I would never want to work there because I would rather work in a place where I could establish and maintain relationships with patients over time. And I always said, I hear you because that's, that's a different type of relationship. And I think that in eight minutes, I can establish rapport and have a nice yes. relationship with somebody like, Absolutely. and it's yes. all about, it's those things of sitting and engaging and eye contact and being your authentic self. I mean, I just think that we can do that a, a piece of it immediately. And when we model that, it puts, it sets the conditions, I guess, to put the other person at ease to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think too, what you're getting at is um, the piece of emotions and like self-management and self-regulation um, because I learned through, through therapy, of course, like, you know, my therapist would say other people's feelings are not yours to own. And so I think amen. when we're in, yeah. I, know you're, I know you're not a Catholic anymore, but I have to say amen to that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. And so I think when I was a coach, cause I've been a, a, a educational instructional coach since 2007 in some form or fashion. Um, I'm good with connecting people because I'm, you know, self-deprecating. I can make it comfortable and and we can connect pretty easily. Um, But I've had to get better about managing my own emotions in those interactions to make space for their emotions and not just my reaction to their emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that's true with kids, you know, my own biological kids, the kids I work with, the adults I work with. It's not just about being authentic because I can be authentically myself and be spewing my emotions into the conversation when I really need to center their needs and their, you know, what they need to get out of it and the conditions they need to learn and grow, because that's my role in my job. Um, but it's, it's taken time to learn that for me as a coach. That definitely. I think in, when I was trained as a coach, the piece, the competency around that was mostly around non-attachment right? Mm -hmm. That you just have to like, it's, it's in the space, the client guides where we're going and you have to not be attached to where it's going or what they're feeling. Um, And I think what you're bringing up since we've been channeling Dr. Brene Brown all morning, I think it's, it's also important to say what I think you're also saying is it's a, it's a sprinkle of authenticity, vulnerability topped with boundaries. Yes. Right. Because, because vulnerability as Brene Brown will say, it's not like spewing your guts at the conference table. It's actually vulnerability with boundaries because boundaries are important, right? They're, they're also, and I had never thought about this until I got into these great conversations with smart people like you and, and Brianne is boundary boundaries are also a form of self-care. Mm-hmm. right? Of taking care mm-hmm. of self. Um, so yeah. So I would just add to your authenticity and vulnerability. I would add boundaries to that other, yes. other piece. Yes. Of and it, it ties back to that IFS, that internal family systems too. It's like the CEO at the table, the, the true self, the orchestra conductor has to keep boundaries so that, you know, the violin isn't overplaying or the hustler isn't mm-hmm. out there taking over. Um, yeah. And Though they're hard because society rewards you, at least I'll speak for me as a white woman, um, 
for not having boundaries, you know, for responding to the work email on Sunday morning for, Mm. um, you know, staying late and not making it to your kids thing, like that's all rewarded. Um, And so boundaries are a struggle. I think the thing that I've had to learn from working with my other child, I have a um, 20 year old son, is that, um, and I think it's tied into white saviorism too, in my work at least, not with my son, um, that not having boundaries and letting people um, kind of feel the consequences of their own actions shuts down their ability to learn and grow. And so if that's one of my like core values as an educator that people need to learn and grow, then me rushing in and fixing and saving doesn't allow them to learn and grow. And so it's not just about having boundaries for my own self and my self-care. Um, it's about setting the conditions for them to learn and grow when they push up against my boundary, you know, making space, you can feel however you want to feel about it. Your feelings are your business, not mine. Um, but that's how you learn and grow yeah. in, in adjusting to other people's boundaries, regulating your own emotions, like that kind of that feedback. Absolutely. I I don't remember, and I I can't attribute this to the right person, but I heard either in a podcast or a book I read that the other, one of the other things about boundaries in, in the example that you gave Heather is the question that this person was asking is, do you not trust the person enough or have enough confidence in the person to think they can do it on their own? Mm -hmm. right so like Mm -hmm. there's a question of like how much do you trust that person how much confidence do you have in that what are your expectations like it's almost like you don't believe they can do it so you have to step in right yes Um, yes so there's a so there's there's so much um at play with this boundary piece that is that is so so critical so yeah so authenticity vulnerability and boundaries um so so important and we could definitely do a whole other hour on parenting and all of those things oh, that you just said. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. Like right. after that conversation oh. I had with the student who was sharing with me around the conditions, conditions for, I've been all weekend, and this is really a moment of vulnerability for me all weekend. I've been thinking about how to re-engage with my, my kids. Like what are the questions I could be asking that are offering up conditions versus me? Cause I, I'm so bad at like letting my adult angst (laughs) Mm -hmm. come into Mm -hmm. the space, whether it's, it's, you know, they're, they did this. So, oh my gosh, what are people going to think? I'm not a good enough parent. I did this wrong. Right. Like, oh, (laughs) You know what? Like I need to let go of these outcomes. (laughs) This was life changing for me, and I I um also listened to the We Can Do Hard Things podcast with Doyle and company. Um, and I was I I was in Europe this um fall. I was traveling with my mom, my sister in Italy, and we were on a train ride. And I was listening to two episodes they had with Dr. Becky Kennedy. I'm listening to those right now. Oh my God. They're so good. (laughs) And I have the book good inside. It's in my pile. Is it good? With your book. Um, I haven't read it, but those two podcasts were like life changing for me as a parent. Um, That's so funny. I was listening yesterday and I was like, I'm like, (laughs) OMG. I had to keep, I journal when I listen to their podcasts or like Mm. when I'm out walking and then I come home and journal. And with those podcasts, I had to stop it like every 15 minutes because she was just dropping such nuggets. And, and for me to kind of like come full circle, I love the title of her book, Good Inside. I love that too. 
that so that's funny. what it's about, right? Like yeah. seeing the goodness in others, seeing the goodness in ourselves. And when we bring those to our inner interactions, that's when we can belong totally. to each other. Well, I have to say, I also give, um, Dr. Kennedy props because in her talking about, she talks about attachment and family mm-hmm. systems theory and in her stories, what I so appreciated talking about your friend or colleague who was building community. I so appreciated that she was so honest and vulnerable about the fact that when her, she was using an example of her, her kid, not wanting to mingle um, mm-hmm. with the other mm-hmm. kids. So like mm-hmm. at a party and she's yep. like, she said to me, she said, not to me, she said to the pot, to the <laughs> podcast, it felt like me. Um, she said to the interviewers, as a psychologist and therapist, I was still feeling like, look, kid, I do this for a living. You better get in there and engage. With these. So I was yeah. so, I mean, I don't want her to be having those feelings, but I felt so much better knowing that I'm not the only one. <laughs> Because it's validating, right? It's totally validating. And I think that's the, that's the piece, at least to me in the anti-racism work is being vulnerable and putting yourself out there and admitting your mistakes and taking the risk of feeling shame. You know, like Brene Brown says, shame can't survive unless it's in silence. So yeah, you put it out there. Um, And that's what she does for me in terms of parenting. Like she normalizes those feelings. hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I always, I do believe that the universe keeps sending me messages and screaming at me when, and sends me stuff. And I think it's like our talking about this and listening to it yesterday. I have been thinking for about six months about, I have a colleague in town who was, who was also a coach and we've been toying with the idea of doing um, a parent group and doing Mm. coaching around parents. And I think this conversation is like, okay, you, how many more messages do you need (laughs) to say, do this work. So, um, yeah, I, I, cause I do, I think we need that. We just need, we need to be able to hold space for each mm-hmm. other to know that it's okay, that you're not going to be, you know, a perfect parent and you're okay. You're valued. You don't need to prove it. Right. Like all mm-hmm. the things you said. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So thank you for, for that, um, addition. So Brian, unless you have other questions, thoughts, I'm going to no, I just up. now I know what I'm going to listen to on my way to carpool today. 100%. Oh my goodness! Well, make it's sure so you good. Make Reeves. sure you have like a voice memo thing or a notepad oh, because, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it was it's pretty remarkable, and I I'm glad I'm I maybe you know what would be really fun not to put you on the spot, Heather, but um, we should all eventually read Good Inside and then do yes. a book club podcast. Yes, on the book. wouldn't that be, that so be great. fun? Yes. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be so fun. Cause I feel like I need, I need that space. I don't feel like I have that space like formally. So I would love to have that space to have those conversations. So time me up. Mm, Awesome. Well, we love at the end of an interview feeling so much gratitude, Heather, just to offer you a last opportunity to share anything you want to share that wasn't covered in the conversation or the questions we asked. Um, I just want to thank you all for this opportunity. Um, Like you acknowledged, I was battling imposter syndrome pretty badly, but you all are so skillful um, in setting the conditions as we keep talking about um, that it really, it felt like a space where I could be authentically myself. So I'm just very, very appreciative for this opportunity. Awesome. Well, I hope I'm going to, I'm going to share it. I, I, I don't think you'll mind before we got on to record 
Heather shared that she hadn't felt this nervous since taking comp exams in her doctoral program. And Brianne and I said, no one has ever compared our conversation to a comp exam. So I hope that, that it didn't feel anything like a comp Never. exam. Not for, not for a single second. Fantastic. Good. Single that's second. good. That's, that's really good. So I look, I, I can say thank you. I can say with much gratitude, I can show you with my hand over my heart, how appreciative and honestly, in all authenticity and vulnerability, I don't really think there's language that can express the amount of gratitude I feel for this hour of conversation that we've had together. So, um, yeah. So thank you both thank for you. a great conversation and all the, I don't know, all the nuggets and great notes that I was able to take during the conversation. All right, everybody. Anything else, Brian? No, mic drop. All right. Awesome. All right, everybody. This has been another wonderful episode of Tell Me This. Thank you to Dr. Yohannik and Dr. Ruse for this great conversation. Take care, everybody, and be well. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.